0: congregation, would you you please remain standing, would you? And I'm going to ask the orchestra if you would stand as well. We have a great privilege in this nation. You know, we surrender the, the flag to our Lord and Savior and not the other way around. And we're very honored to have our guest speaker, who is a veteran, here to lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance this morning. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you so much for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, I thank you that you came as our ransom as our substitute to offer us forgiveness, to pay the debt for our sin, and we're so grateful, Lord. It is so humbling, Lord, to think of how far you came to save us and the mercy that you give us. God, I'm so grateful for what you've done in my life and my heart, and the forgiveness that you've brought and the peace that comes through knowing you. Lord, I pray this morning that you would awaken the conscience in the heart of someone who doesn't know you, that they would this person would be saved, whoever they are. I mean, Men, women, boys, and girls who come to faith, trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior. God, we pray that you would help me to preach the Bible. God, I pray I'd rightly divide the word of truth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'll be talking this morning, speaking about the gospel and government. I appreciate Pastor Chad for the invitation to preach here today. He's the chairman of trustees at our school. My wife, Lisa, and I were members here for many years. And uh, so it's great to be back. I saw Pastor Steve for, um, for, for lunch, I guess, maybe four or five weeks ago. And uh, it was so good to see him. And I just realized something, Kelly. My, a couple of my subpoints are alliterated. I just thought so. In honor of Pastor Steve, I have some alliterated subpoints. And uh, so. First Timothy chapter two, verses one through seven. The Word of God says this. First of all, then I urge that petitions, excuse me, entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority. So that we might live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. And then Paul makes a comment about himself and says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The gospel and government. One of the most famous humorists in the history of the United States was Will Rogers, the native Oklahoman whose wit expressed in the most humorous way while the average person was thinking about major issues. Uh, the Oklahoma City airport's named after him. Of all the topics which Rogers used for humor, none suppressed the politics of the United States government. And Will Rogers called Congress the national joke factory and said, people ask me where I get my jokes. Why, I just watch Congress and report the facts. I don't even have to exaggerate. He also said, Never blame a legislative body for not doing something. When they do nothing, they don't hurt anybody. When they do something, is when they become dangerous. Well, amen. And perhaps my favorite Will Rogers quote During one filibuster, one senator threatened to read the Bible into the record, and I guess he would have done it if somebody in the Capitol had had a Bible. Well, I suppose we've all wondered if somebody in the capital has a Bible at times. And part of our frustration is we place a great deal of hope and faith in our government and elected officials, and yet so often politics turns petty and squabbles of the most immature kind occur. The great hope placed in government combined with government's failures leads to tremendous disappointment among the citizens I would encourage us not to become too discouraged. G.K. Chesterton said, Seemingly, from the dawn of man, all nations have had governments and all nations have been ashamed of them. Well, there have certainly been times when we've been ashamed of our government. 1 Timothy 2 1 through 7 gives us the right perspective to think about God and government. How is it that we as Christians are to approach this issue, which is so important? How do we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the way we interact or the way we even think about government, our expectations we have of government? I think this passage gives us some perspective. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7 teaches us that Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man who gave himself as a ransom for our sins And the glory of the person and work of Jesus Christ shapes our perspective on government. Today, we're going to learn about the glory of Jesus Christ and what to expect of government. So we're going to talk about the gospel and government. Four big ideas out of this passage. The first one is this. Christians desire good for our government. Christians desire good for our government. Would you look at verse one again? There are four words for prayer there. Paul says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be offered on behalf of all men for kings and those all who are in authority. So he uses four words for prayer. They're all in the plural, and it's hard to get an idea about the specific definitions for each of those words for prayer. Uh, So much so, I like what the message paraphrase says about 1 Timothy 2.1. It paraphrases it, I urge you, first of all, to pray in every way you know how for everyone you know. And that's what we are to do. God calls us to pray. The idea that Christians are supposed to pray for our government, for kings and those in authority, means we desire good, not evil, for the nations where we live. That's true for Christians all around the world. Christians in Nigeria desire good for their government, Christians in the Bahamas desire good for their government, Christians in countries where they are oppressed, like Iran or China still desire good for their government and the nation where they live at. And you and I, we are to pray because we desire good for our government and we desire good for the United States of America. You'll never find a better citizen than a Christian. So we're to pray for our government and we're to pray for our government officials, regardless of who they are. Look at verse one again. Notice what it says. He says, we're to pray in these four different ways for all men for kings and all who are in authority. Do you see that word king there? First Timothy was written sometime between 62 and 66 AD. And if you know your history, you know who the king, the emperor of the Roman Empire was in that time area. Who was the emperor at that time? Who was it? It was Nero. Nero. You will never find a more despicable person than Nero. In fact, the Roman historian Tacitus said this. This is how he described Nero. Nero himself, defiled by every natural and unnatural lust, had left no abomination in reserve with which to crown his vicious existence. That's what one of his own historians said about him. He'd so exaggerated his own immorality, there was nothing left for him to do. Nero was so bad, Rome burned to the ground, or at least 75% of it did, in uh, excuse me, A.D. 64, when uh, a fire started in the Circus Maximus and spread throughout the entire city of Rome, this famous burning of Rome. Nero probably did not burn Rome. It probably started by an accident, but he was so evil and so vile, everyone blamed him for the fire. And so to deflect criticism from himself, you know who he blamed for the fire that burned Rome in 64 A.D. He blamed Christians and started persecuting Christians. When Paul says, pray, pray, for kings and all who are in authority, he's talking to his con- in his context to his audience, he's talking about Nero, evil, vile Nero. If Christians in 64 AD were supposed to pray for Nero, we are supposed to pray for politicians and government officials today, regardless of whether we voted for them or not. We're supposed to pray for them. Well, what do we pray for them? Two things, we pray for their conversion, We pray for their conscience. We pray for their conversion. Uh, Sometimes when we see politicians on TV, they become a disembodied person, just a bunch of pixels on the screen, and we forget these are real people and they really need Jesus Christ and they need to be saved. I might encourage you there's nothing wrong with the United States that an old fashioned revival wouldn't take care of. So be great if a revival started in Washington, D.C., and a lot of them got saved. We pray for their conversion. Not only do we pray for their conversion, we pray for their conscience, that their sense of right and wrong would be oriented towards virtue and things that build a strong republic and things that build virtue into the citizens. So we pray for their conversion. We pray for their conscience. We are called to pray for kings and all those who are in authority, regardless of who they are. But notice also at the end of that list of four prayers. Do you see this? We're to offer entreaties, prayers, petitions. And the last word is thanksgivings for, king, for all men and kings and all who are in authority. All who are in authority. We are to offer thanksgivings for them. We are to be thankful. And there are two groups in particular that deserve our thanks. There's many people involved with government for which we should be thankful By the way, you should be thankful for government because living under a government is far better than living under something that's not ruled by any government because that's anarchy. And so it's better to live under a bad government than no government at all. But we're particularly to be thankful, and there's two groups that deserve our thanks. First are the police. The police deserve our thanks. We should offer prayers of thanksgiving for our police the men and women of law enforcement who daily put on body armor, strap on their sidearm, and place themselves between us and violent people. There is indeed a thin blue line separating our culture from anarchy and civilized culture. On April 30th, 2007, a violent murderer went into the Ward Parkway Mall here in Kansas City and began killing people. One of my students at the seminary, a man named Rusty, was at the mall that day. He dove behind a counter of a restaurant that is no longer there to shield himself from the bullets. Two days after this mass murder, he told me what happened, and here's what he described to me. He said everyone else was running away from the sound of gunfire, but what struck him was almost immediately that the Kansas City police showed up And while everyone else was running away from the sound of gunfire, the police officers ran into the mall to face and stop this evil gunman. We should be thankful for people who don't run from the sound of gunfire, but run to it to defend us. We need our police officers. I realize some of my neighbors maybe become very frustrated by the actions of a handful of people who abuse their authority. Well, I'm a preacher, and perhaps you've heard of some preachers who've done some evil things. Well, we don't throw all the preachers under the bus because of a handful have done some evil things. We don't throw all the police officers under the bus because a handful have done bad things. Defunding police will not expand freedom, but will empower criminals. We should be thankful, and we should recognize demands to defund the police for exactly what they are, complete nonsense. So... (laughs) So you need to tell a police officer thankful the next time you meet uh, one of our men and women in law enforcement. Tell them you've been praying for them. And if you tell them that, their answer might be, well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Please sign here. Your court date will be on this particular day. So... uh, (laughs) Pray pray for them. But not only should we pray for our police and be thankful for them, we should be thankful for our military. There are many things in our country which need our attention, and we should be critically aware of times when America has failed in its mission. Slavery stands out. When we celebrate Independence Day or we stand for the national anthem, we are not denying the things that are wrong in our country, but we are celebrating the things that are best. And there's nothing better in America than our military. Um, this This has been a challenge in the first two sermons for me to get through. So when I think of America, I think of Valley Forge. When I think of America... I think of Josiah Chamberlain and a group of men from Maine on Little Round Top at the Battle of Gettysburg on July 2nd, 1863, and the Confederates are about to turn the left flank, and they're out of ammunition, and they can't retreat, and they can't stay where they are, and Josiah Chamberlain orders them to fix bayonets and charge, and they defended that piece of ground, and it's hard to say, but may have saved the Union. I thank God for people like that. When I think of America, I think of the Tuskegee Airmen flying P-51s against the Germans in World War II and fighting the Nazis when they're denied certain civil rights on their own here in the United States. And not only were they fighting to stop the Nazis, they were fighting for a hope of a better future in America. When I think of America, I think of my departed neighbor, Mr. Harold who fought in the United States Army in World War II and a few years back before he died, we're having a community get together and he and I are sitting under an oak tree on a warm spring day And he begins talking to me about March of 1945, and he's walking down a road in Germany with one of his comrades, and a German 88-millimeter round comes in. They can hear the shell coming, and he dives in a ditch on one side of the road, and his friend dives in a ditch on another side of the road, and that round explodes in between them. And Harold got up and brushed himself off, but his friend had taken a piece of shrapnel through the helmet, and he died. And 70 years later, as a 90-year-old man, underneath an oak tree on a warm spring day, he still grieved over the loss of that friend 70 years earlier. When I think of America, I think of my father-in-law, Junior Swan. He was here at church last night, who, who served in the United States Army in Vietnam and drove heavy equipment and to this day suffers immeasurably from the effects of Agent Orange. When I think of America, I think of my uncle, Gerald Branch, who was a Marine Corps infantryman in Vietnam, and I think of him slogging through the rice paddies and through the jungles. And when I think of my uncle Gerald and my father-in-law, Junior Swan, They're two of the finest Christian men I've ever met, and they went, and they didn't burn their draft card, and they didn't go to Canada, and they didn't go to Oxford where they smoked but didn't inhale. They went. When I think of America, I think of a day on the tarmac at Kandahar Airfield in May of 2012. And I'm standing there with a group of other chaplains watching two flag-draped coffins being put on a C-17 as two American warriors made their final trip home. As I'm standing there in that heat watching those two flag-draped coffins go onto that aircraft, I thought about the casualty notification teams that went to the homes and the families that had a knock at the door and there is standing a chaplain in his dress uniform and a Uh, senior NCO in a dress uniform, and they know exactly why they're there. I thank God for America when it's at its best, and there's nothing better than our military. We should offer prayers of thanks. It does seem that the current sentiment is to find every fault and failure in the USA's history and magnify those sad moments as reasons to kick the old girl to the curb and take up a new tryst with some undemocratic ideals. For all its failures, America has been the place where poor and oppressed people knew they could come and find respite and safety and freedom. There's a reason why they're at the southern border, y'all. One of the most famous patriotic tunes in American history was written by a Jewish immigrant whose family found peace in America after escaping pogroms in Tsarist Russia. This young man and his family came here to find peace from anti-Semitism and he was writing hit songs in the early 1900s living in New York. And during World War I, he'd written a tune about America, but didn't quite know what to do with it, so the song sat unpublished. But as Hitler began to threaten Europe, a young man who'd seen anti-Jewish violence in Russia knew it when he saw it and he knew anti-Semitism when he saw it, so he brought this tune back out. And this very grifted Jewish immigrant revised the song, and it was introduced to the United States in Kate Smith's very popular radio program on Armistice Day, November 11, 1938. Kate Smith, I know you young people don't know her, but she was as popular in her day as Carrie Underwood is today. And she introduced this patriotic tone uh, song. The songwriter was Irving Berlin. And though the first stanza isn't sung much anymore, you will recognize the refrain. The words still stir my heart. While the storm clouds gather far across the sea, let us swear allegiance to a land that's free. Let us all be grateful for a land so fair as we raise our voices in a solemn prayer. God bless America, the land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above. Our beloved song was written by a Jewish immigrant whose family escaped brutal anti-Semitism to find freedom here. America has been the refuge for the persecuted from all around the world. Should she cease to exist or be transformed into something undemocratic, the world would become a darker and more dangerous place. God bless America. Christians want good for our country. Christians want the liberty to live out our faith according to God's word. Would you look down at verse, verses one and two again? We're to offer prayer for kings and all who are in authority. And then he gives the reason. So that we may lead try, uh, tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. That's our goal. We, we want the freedom to live out our faith and we want to do it in peace. Look at those first two words, tranquil and quiet. We want peace. We do not want uh, to be coerced to do things that go against our conscience. The first word tranquil refers to freedom from an outside force. The word quiet refers to an internal conscience that is at peace because we're not being asked to compromise on matters of conscience. We want to live at peace. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with every man. So Christians desire to be peace. But we also desire to live our lives in purity. Notice the next two words, tranquil and quiet lives. And then the end of the line, it says, in all godliness and dignity. That word godliness refers to our ethics. Now, we know the Bible also says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's in Second Timothy But what we're asking for is the ability to live out our lives according to the dictates of our conscience, according to Christian ethics. And we want our children to be raised according to our Christian faith as we see right without the state trying to tell them something different. We want the ability to raise our families and live our lives according to Christian ethics and all godliness and dignity in purity. And we don't want the government forcing us to compromise on matters of conscience. We want to live in purity. So not only do we want peace and we want purity, but look down at verse 7. Paul says something about himself. Uh, We want to be able to proclaim the gospel publicly. Look at verse 7. Notice what Paul says. Paul says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. Circle that word preacher. The word in Greek is the word for herald, H-E-R-A-L-D. Back in uh, the Roman Empire, they didn't have the internet or newspapers. And when an announcement was made of a business nature or a legal nature, they would hire people that would go out into the street, a herald, and the man would shout, A business deal has been contracted between two firms. A law has been passed. A sentence has been passed in the court for someone's crime. You had a herald that made a public proclamation. So when Paul talks there in verse 7 about being a preacher and an apostle, he's talking about public proclamation, the freedom to share the gospel. That's what we want. We want to share our faith and tell other people about Jesus. Here's the point. As Christians, we don't leave Jesus at home when we go to school. We don't leave Jesus at home when we go to university. We don't leave Jesus at home when we go to work. We don't leave Jesus at home when we go to the uh, voting booth. We want the ability to live out our faith in freedom and peace and according to God's word. But third, Christians, and this the, really our view for shaping and thinking about this, we have to think very carefully. A lot of my Lost friends, they don't mind liberty, but they get uncomfortable when I talk about evangelism. Um, I suppose my non-believing neighbors get defensive. Uh, For people who don't believe in God, if they think of religion at all, it is conceived as something intensely private and personal, a sort of Zen meditation in isolation from all others. But that is not the Christian faith. I do not want the practices of my faith in Jesus to be defined and limited by those who have no faith in anything. These concepts are important to us and they're better understood when we get the third point. That is that Christians worship God alone as our savior. You understand everything he says about tranquil and quiet life and godliness and dignity. When you understand verse three, And notice what it says. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. You see that there? God is our Savior, not government. God is our Savior, not some politician. God is our Savior. That shapes our perspective. We are not looking for government to save us. There is a purpose for government. God ordained government. God designed government. Romans 13, 1 through 7 says it has a purpose. So we believe in government. But government and not our Savior. God alone is. And that means God alone is worthy of our worship. There is one God. He is our Savior. And this is the essential statement of the Christian faith and hope. Everything we, else we believe about living in our world is shaped by that statement. God is our Savior. Human leaders often want to supplant God. They demand for themselves what the Bible says is due to God alone. And sometimes human rulers want to be worshiped. In 2017... Christians in China underwent a new round of persecution from the Communist Party. They were told to take down displays of Jesus, crosses, and gospel passages from their homes as part of a government propaganda effort to, uh, and I quote, transform believers in religion into believers in the party. Instead of Christian symbols, they were told to put up pictures of President Xi. And In some churches, the Communist Party has taken down the Ten Commandments. This really happened a couple years ago. One of these Communist Party officials goes into a church, and you have the Ten Commandments outside the church here. And you know the first of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Uh, So a lot of Chinese churches actually have the Ten Commandments hanging on the wall. So this Communist official a couple years ago (laughs) goes into a Chinese church and there's the Ten Commandments. The first one is thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he said, I don't think President Xi would like that. You should take it down. Well, I bet he doesn't like it. We've got a lot of them here in the United States don't like it either, but it's still God's word. Christians worship God alone as our savior and governments and government officials sometimes throughout history have wanted to put themselves into the place of God alone. They've wanted to worship which is due only to God but God is our savior. Early Christians were told to participate in emperor worship by burning a pinch of incense to the emperor. And they were told, this is how, hey, listen, we appreciate you praying for us in the Roman empire. The way you prove your loyalty is you burn this pinch of incense to Caesar and you say something like Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Curios, And the Christians wouldn't do it. Because Caesar is not Lord. It's not true. Jesus is Lord. And today, there are people that want us to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar. And their answer is no. Why? Government's not our Savior. Jesus is Lord. And we're not bowing the knee to anyone else. So the. So let me talk to you about a Baptist proposal on these things. Baptists have something very special to say about this. In fact, I'm prepared to argue that the First Amendment is the Baptist gift to American civics. It goes back to a conversation between James Madison and Baptist leader John Leland before the Constitutional Convention. But what is it a Baptist want? Well, first thing I would say is Baptists believe church and state should be separate that does not mean we want God excluded from government. It does mean that church and state should be separate. Well, why don't we want a state-sponsored church? I'll give you a few reasons. First of all, a state-sponsored church confuses people about the meaning of the new birth. People assume they are saved because they are born into a particular nation. But being born in a nation doesn't make you a Christian, only knowing Jesus personally does. Secondly, a state-sponsored church gives people a false sense of security. Someone thinks, well, I'm born into this nation, we have a state-sponsored church, I must be okay with God. But being born somewhere doesn't settle the issue of eternal security, only knowing Jesus does. Third, a state-sponsored church leads to coerced conversions where people feel forced to believe in Christ, but people only come to Christ by a choice of their own. With a state-sponsored church, people are often compelled to baptize. Uh, The Baptist missionary William Carey in India faced this sort of problem. Some British officials wanted to coerce some Hindu people into following Christ and becoming Christians. And here's what William Carey said. I replied that I thought it would be wrong for government to use any force at all. And added that as conversions must arise from conviction in the mind, it was not possible that coercion should ever produce a Christian. It might make hypocrites, but it can never make a Christian, so we don't believe in coerced conversions. And fourth, a state sponsored church puts itself in the place of God as the mediator between us and God. But the Bible says here in verse 6, there's uh, verse 5, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our mediator, not the government. So what is it we're trying to say? Well, we believe church and state should be separate, but we don't want God excluded from government or the public square. Our secular neighbors and friends have reinterpreted the old idea of separation of church and state origins in a letter from Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist Association of all things, they've reinterpreted it to mean something very different from what it meant in 1802. And they've said that separation of church and state means no one should ever bring religiously motivated speech into public policy debates. But that is never what it meant. Separation of church and state does not mean exclusion of God from government. What we are asking for is a free church and a free state. While we do believe church and state should be separate, we do not believe God should be excluded from government. What we want is an open marketplace of ideas. Let our neighbors bring whatever silly, materialistic, atheistic nonsense they think is a good idea into the public marketplace of ideas and let's see if it withstands criticism. We're gonna bring gospel-based, Bible-based ideas into the public marketplace of ideas. Let the best idea win, let the fur fly, let's see what happens. We're not afraid of public debate because we've got confidence in the Word of God. So I wanna tell you, we want a free church in a free state. Marxist leaders all around the world, when they take over, what's the first thing they do? They shut down freedom of speech and they shut down freedom of religion. You know why? The biggest obstacle to a Marxist government is a Baptist preacher with an open pulpit and an open Bible. Because when you proclaim Jesus in the public marketplace of ideas, a whole lot of people are going to say, Marx, no. Jesus, yes. I'm going with him. Listen, we don't have a faith that needs to be propped up by government. We're so confident of the gospel, we don't want the government to prop us up. We just want the government to get out of our way and we're going to go after lost people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Since God alone is our Savior, this limits our expectations of government. God our Savior. Only God will usher in perfection when Jesus Christ returns. We do not believe government will be our savior. Government has a purpose, to restrain evil. But we affirm government and we want our nation to prosper. We're not looking for government to answer our deepest problems. Humanity's greatest problem is sin. And while a properly functioning government can rein in the effects of sin, government can never solve our sin problem. Government will never usher in utopia. Mark's talked about, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And the way the whole thing's supposed to end is it ends everybody just living in a happy utopia and uh, there's not even any more government. It's never worked anywhere that's tried it. And it never will because government will never usher in utopia. Government will never bring in perfection. As Christians, we are only looking for perfection when Jesus Christ returns. He's coming. He's coming, Jesus Christ is coming. He has a name and it's faithful and true. He has a robe that's been dipped in blood. He's coming. He's coming faster than a wheel turns on an axle. He's coming. He's coming and he's riding on a white horse and he's got the armies of heaven with him. He's coming. And when he comes, he's not riding on a donkey or an elephant. He's not coming to take sides. He's coming to take over. Jesus Christ is coming and that's our hope. That gives us some perspective about the gospel and government, what we expect government can and cannot do. We worship God alone as our Savior, and that comes into sharper perspective when we look at the last few verses in this passage of Scripture. Christians believe Jesus Christ and Christ alone brings freedom from sin. Paul goes from this discussion about praying for people in authority and kings and what we desire to tranquil and quiet life, and God alone is our savior. And then he starts talking about the gospel. And these verses are so rich, and I have just a few moments. I'm going to hit the tops of some hills for you. First of all, Christ and Christ alone brings salvation. First of all, he invites everyone to be saved. He invites everyone to know the freedom from sin. Look at verse four, uh, excuse me, three and four, and notice what it says. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. Oh, the theologians get hung up on that verse. Oh, God desires all men to be saved. What are you going to do with that? Here's what I tell you it means. It means you are invited. It is a universal invitation It is not universalism. Doesn't mean everybody will be saved. It is a universal invitation. It means you can be saved. So everyone has to trust Christ on their own and believe on Christ. There's no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ. So this invitation, you are invited. Let me put it in perspective and tell a story from uh, my teenage years. I grew up in Paulding County, Georgia when it was very rural. And at the end of my junior year in high school, Uh, There was a kid in the youth group at my church. Their family had just built a pool. And uh, out where we lived at, that was a big deal. They had a cement pond, right? And so we had had a pool. And at the end of my junior year, this uh, teenager in my youth group at church gave everyone in the youth group a handwritten, hand-delivered invitation to a pool party at the end of the school year. Everybody got an invitation except me. My therapist says I'm doing really well. I'm achieving (laughs) victories right around the corner. Prozac's working. Positive self-talk. Hey, it's a painful thing not to be invited. Here's what I want you to know. When it comes to forgiveness and new life in Christ, you are (laughs) invited. God invites you. Not only are you invited, not only that, but Jesus Christ not only invites everyone, he intercedes for us with God. Look at verse five. There is one God, a whole sermon in that, one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I want to zero in on that word mediator. Do you see it? Circle it. That word was used outside the Bible to refer to people uh, that would broker business deals between two parties and help establish a contract. Sometimes it was a word used outside the Bible to resolve someone who was an arbitrator between parties who had a disagreement. And I think that's what it's getting at here, that we have a mediator. Uh, we are sinful and God is holy and we've been at war with God and this war between us and God, and Jesus Christ is our mediator. Job cries out for the same thing. In his pain, and his grief, and his suffering, Job cried out that he wishes he had a, a mediator. The old King James said a daysman that he might intercede between him and God. And that's what Jesus Christ did. He was our mediator. He took one nail-pierced hand and laid it on holy God. He took another nail-pierced hand and laid it on sinful man. And when we believe in him, what happens is he says, Here, let's be friends. He is our mediator. He intercedes for us. Not only does he invite everyone, and he intercedes for us. Notice what else. He identified with us. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I wish I could paint a picture for you of how that jumps off the page. The man Christ Jesus is driving at his humanity. Jesus Christ was completely God and completely man. And in the incarnation, he stepped out of eternity into time and he identified with us in all our pain and all our heartache. Uh, There's been some tough times in my life. And there's been some times that were dark and discouraging. And in the darkest moments in my life, The president of the United States never gave me a call, not once. And the deepest, most discouraging moments of my life, I never had a governor send me a text saying, hang in there. When I was really, really down, I never even had the local city council send me an email. I've never had the first politician show one concern for me when sin had ravaged my life. But I can tell you this, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, stepped out of eternity into time. And when I was a little boy at Vacation Bible School, he came into my heart. And I'm telling you, he identified with us in our brokenness, in the pain, in the heartache of this world. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin, completely sinless, identifying with us, though, in the sufferings of humanity. And he cares for you. He invites us to a relationship. He intercedes for us as a mediator. He identified with us in our brokenness as humans. And then finally, he invaded this world to set people free from sin. No politician ever did that. He invaded this world to set people free from sin. Look at verse 6. And gave himself a ransom for all. There's so much in that verse. The little prepositions there are dripping with theological meaning, the Little word, gave himself for us, a ransom for all. It implies substitution. I don't have time to get into the details, but he died in our place. But look at the word ransom. That word was used outside the Bible to describe uh, purchasing someone from slavery. So in the Roman Empire, someone would be a slave. They couldn't get themselves out. Another rich benefactor, or perhaps a family member or a friend, would pay money, and they called it a ransom would pay the ransom to purchase that person out of slavery. And that's the word that's used here. It's a unique word on it. has got a little preposition on the front of it that means in the behalf of. It's on the behalf of ransom. And so the idea is this. I, I couldn't get myself out of sin. So on behalf of me, Jesus went to the cross I couldn't pay my sin debt. On behalf of me, Jesus paid my ransom. I couldn't set myself free from sin. On behalf of me, Jesus interceded for me. And what a change he brings. What dramatic transformation comes when Jesus sets you free from sin. If you've not experienced it, it's hard to describe it. But let me use the words of Harriet Tubman, if I will, the famous African-American on the Underground Railroad who led people out of slavery into the free states of the North. Harriet Tubman described the first night she crossed over from the slave state of Maryland to the free state of Pennsylvania. And early the next morning as the sun come up, came up, she realized she was now in a free state and she was no longer in slavery. And she said, when I found I had crossed that line, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. Listen, when you come to Christ, right now, if you're apart from Christ, it seems there's no way you'll ever get free from sin. All I can tell you is when Jesus comes in and changes your life through the new birth, there comes a point when you are growing and walking with Christ, you look back at your life when you were in the slavery of sin and you look at yourself and say, I can't believe the joy I have the peace I have, the forgiveness I have? Am I the same person that Christ has taken over? He invaded this world to free people from sin. Well, Branch, I didn't ask anybody to die for me. I don't need a cross, blood, nails, crown of thorns. I didn't ask somebody to die for me. I think that attitude only indicates the degree to which someone does not realize the seriousness of your situation apart from Christ. Let me try to put it into perspective by telling a story from World War II. During World War II, the Japanese uh, Imperial Army imprisoned thousands of Allied soldiers in the Philippines. Some they moved on to Japan and China. But of all the prison camps in the Philippines, none was worse than one called Cabanatuan, And at the end of World War II in 1945, there were about 500 uh, U.S. prisoners of war being held in the Cabanatuan prison camp. The United States had invaded the Philippines in uh, October of 1944, and they're trying to retake the islands. It's taking time. As the Imperial Japanese Army discovered that these prison camps are about to be set free, they began executing prisoners. So the people at Cabanatuan knew that a sentence of death was hanging over their head. They had been slave labor for the Imperial Japanese Army. They could not get out. And it looked like there was no hope but on the night of January 30th, 1945, a group of U.S. Army Rangers, along with a large group of Filipino warriors, snuck across the rice paddies, came up, uh, surprised the enemy, defeated the enemy, rescued all 500 of those POWs at Cabana Tuan, got every one of them safely back to enemy lines. So I want you to get the picture. Here's a group of men who were trapped. They had been slaves. There was a death sentence hanging over their head and they could not get out until someone of greater force and greater power came and liberated them. That is a picture of you and I. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are in the slavery of sin. We don't have the power to set ourselves free. A death sentence is hanging over us. Judgment and wrath and death and hell are all that's in our future. And we can't get out. The good news is Jesus Christ stepped out of eternity into time and he took a Roman cross and three nails and a crown of thorns and a riven side and he sets prisoners free and what we couldn't do for ourselves, he did for us and the sentence of death hanging over us, he took in our place and he sets people free and he sets people free and that's you and that's you and that's you down all the... Confused canyons of the moral choices in your life, he's been pursuing you. Across the broken, jagged fields of the destitute destruction that sin has brought in your life, he's been pursuing you and he's been calling your name and he's been calling your name. And you've made a charge that I want to live my own life and my own autonomy and my own freedom. And you are drowning in your freedom. And he came to set you free with all your brokenness and you free with all your sin. The hope that you need in life is not going to be found in a politician or anyone you're going to see on TV. The hope for your life is found in a Jewish carpenter, the son of God, the son of man who died on a cross in your face and he came to set people free from the slavery of sin. Every head bowed. Well, let's pray. Let's pray. We'll turn over the service to the satellite campuses and I'm going to pray for you now, with our heads bowed, and Bill has come, and we're about to have our invitation hymn. Pastors are coming to the front. I wanna talk to two groups of people. First of all, you're here and you're a Christian, you're saved, you know it, that's been settled. But your attention has been focused too much on TV and the news and social media, and you have been distracted from the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who came to set us free from the slavery of sin. And today, God wants to reorient your focus. And where you're at right now, you might pray and ask God to get your thinking right and your heart right on these things, that you worship Jesus and Jesus alone. There's someone else here, you've never trusted Christ. You've never believed on him in the way the Bible says. And the fact is, you're a slave to sin. Jesus claimed to set you free. I'm about to pray, and after I pray, we're going to sing. And there will be pastors at the church standing here at the front. And if you'd like to believe on Jesus and be set free from the slavery of sin, they will pray with you. They can help you understand what it means to know to follow Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to be saved, we invite you to come. You may have other decisions about church membership or baptism. These pastors are glad to help you. Whatever your decision, after I pray and while we're singing, you come. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you're going to change lives. I pray dear God, Holy Spirit, I know only you can convict and change a heart, and we're asking you to do that. And draw people to yourself, and Lord, I'm praying for you to work a miracle and set someone free from sin. Jesus, may our eyes never get off you. May we focus on you. God alone is our Savior. You're the one mediator, Jesus. I pray we'd worship you. And in light of you, just the things of this world seem so cheap and tawdry. I pray we'd worship you. Jesus, we pray it in your name.